All right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and we are in the middle of asking the question, or trying to answer the question. Maybe we'll just ask a bunch of questions. What is Rick Warren? Is he a pastor, or is he something else? Okay, we were partway through playing a segment from the early show that talks about Rick Warren's surprise visit, shopping trip to West Hollywood, where he just happened to kind of sort of maybe accidentally walk into uh, a an AIDS activist thrift store, you know, to talk about homosexuality. This has all the hallmarks of spin and um, a, a, a publicity stunt. So let's continue with the story here. What he'd read was that Warren supported the recent California ban on gay marriage. He'd heard remarks widely interpreted as equating gay marriage to incest and pedophilia. I'm opposed to having a brother and sister be together and call that marriage. I'm opposed to an older guy marrying a child and calling that a marriage. I'm opposed to one guy having multiple wives and calling that marriage. you got to stop for a second. Rick, it it just doesn't matter what your opinion is. The question is, what does the scripture teach? I'm opposed. I'm this. I'm that. Who cares about you, 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 you? What? The question is, is God opposed? God is opposed to incest. God is opposed to gay marriage. God is opposed. That's the point. Why are we hearing about you? So is there equivalent to gays getting married? Oh, I do. I would ask President-elect Obama, would you have a white separatist given invocation. Howard Bragman, gay activist and celebrity publicist, calls Warren's West Hollywood shopping trip a publicity stunt. Am I suspicious? He just happens to show up at a thrift store in West Hollywood that benefits the the HIV and gay and lesbian community. If it were a charm offensive, it didn't seem to have worked here. Sarabi still questions Obama's Um, choice. What I can't understand is why he would pick somebody who would spew hate spew homophobia. The controversy continues. Bill Whitaker, CBS News, West Hollywood. Okay, so there's the story right there. And folks, it is time for us to stop trying to coexist with people on this. I mean, I don't know if you caught the undertone there, but if you are against gay marriage, then you are the equivalent of a white supremacist. And that if you are against gay marriage, then you are spewing hate. And yet Rick Warren just went out and just happened to be shopping in West Hollywood and happened to have a little photo opportunity with this guy who's running this place. And my question comes back to to this. What is Rick Warren? What is he? Is he a pastor? You know, he's supposed to be a Christian pastor, right? Now, if he's supposed to be a Christian pastor, that means he plays for Team Jesus. At least supposed to. Okay, which means he doesn't actually get to have his own opinions. It's what Christ says. It's what God thinks. It's what God says, right? Pastors aren't supposed to give us their opinions. They're supposed to tell us what the scriptures teach because the scriptures are God's word, which means they reflect what God thinks, what God holds valuable, what God feels, what God expects, right? How God defines good and evil, not you, me, or anybody else. But there's Rick Warren. Well, I I believe that. You know, I believe and I believe and I, who cares what you believe? So if Rick Warren is supposed to be a Christian pastor, that means he has the biblical duty of shepherding God's flock and the ministry of publicly preaching God's word. That's that's really what pastors are supposed to be doing, right? Is he a pastor? Okay, this is an honest question at this point. 
as we'll get into, you'll get a feel for this as we listen to Rick Warren's Christmas sermon, which broadcast on Fox News the day before Christmas. We're going to test it. We're going to just look at how good of a job he does at actually publicly preaching God's word correctly. Okay. And if you know anything about Rick Warren, and I've already made this clear, he twists God's words better than any Mormon or Jehovah's Witness out there. And you'll hear that in a little bit. So Warren's biblical job description, if he's a Christian pastor, is very simple. But when did pastors begin needing to employ security teams and PR experts? Because believe me when I tell you, if Rick, this, this, that whole thing that happened in West Hollywood, that was a PR stunt. And do you think he just happened to come up with that idea by himself? No way, Jose. I have met, shook the hands of, and I have the card of Rick Warren's PR guy. Rick Warren has a PR guy, okay? But my question is, when did pastors start needing security teams and PR experts? When did pastors have to start worrying about how they're being portrayed in the media and have to develop counter strategies and engage in PR stunts in order to get ahead of media cycles? Fact is, pastors who are focused on executing their biblical job description, their biblical duties, don't need security teams and PR experts, do they? Okay, so all of this begs the question, again, what is Rick Warren? Why would a man who's supposed to be a humble Christian pastor be so preoccupied with his media image that he would pay top dollar to employ a PR team and then have that PR team work overtime during the Christmas season in order to prop up his image? Because that's what's happening here. Fact is... There are only a handful of politicians in America that have PR teams as powerful as Pastor Warren has. Okay, I've worked with state assemblymen, I've worked with state senators, I've worked with congressmen, and I've actually met a senator or two, and some presidential candidates. And I can tell you this, no assemblyman has a PR team like Rick Warren. Ain't no state senators got PR teams like Rick Warren, unless you are like the the, the Speaker of the House or the head of the Senate. Okay. Unless you were at the top of your game, you, ha- you haven't got a, a PR machine like this in place. Okay, this is almost Clintonian. It is almost Clintonian the way this is hap- the, the, what is going on here. So, um, so uh, all right, fact is, okay, there's only a handful of politicians in America that have PR teams as powerful as Pastor Warren has. In fact, this mismatch is actually very breathtaking and makes as much sense as a corporate office manager going to work in football pads and a helmet every day. You know, if you're a corporate office manager, you have no need to worry about getting sacked or tackled or anything like that. That's the wrong gear, right? So my question is, why does a pastor have security teams and a PR team? What is Rick Warren, and why does a pastor have such a powerful PR team, and why does he need this? What is he trying to accomplish with this PR team? In fact, what is Rick Warren really trying to protect, and why? That's what I want to know. This doesn't make any sense. If he's just a pastor, an author, who cares, right? But no, he's he doesn't behave or act like a pastor. What do they say? If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and smells like a duck, it's a duck. I'm sorry, but Rick Warren actually walks like a politician, acts like a politician, and behaves and has the resources of a politician. 
my question, if, if he's a politician, then what has he been elected to do? What position does he actually hold? He doesn't behave like a pastor and he doesn't have the resources of a pastor. Everything he has is com- completely contrary and mixed match for anybody who is just a pulpit preacher. Something's seriously askew here. It's wrong. Something's, something's not matching up. Why would a pastor need to be engaging in PR stunts? What is he really? If you'd like to answer the question, take some shots at it, email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. But I'm telling you, he doesn't behave like a pastor. He acts like something completely different. He acts like a different animal altogether. I've seen pastors. I've hung out with pastors. Rick Warren doesn't behave, act, or anything like a pastor. Something completely different. Something very, very different. And it's political. It's not religious. Why the mix between religion and politics with this man? That's my question. All right. The <clears throat> the next segment that we are going to to uh, look at today here is uh, it's going to be Christmas at Saddleback. Why? Because um, well, um, <laughs> I. I'm a glutton for punishment. Um, I don't know. It's just one of those things where we're, we've got to take a look at this. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to actually play large segments of uh, Rick Warren's Christmas sermon that uh, was broadcast on Fox News. And um, what I, you know, and what we'll do is we'll do what we normally do, and that's we'll do uh, on the spot commentary to uh, you know chime in and see you know and make sure we got the flavor for what's going on here. And compare it to the Word of God. And, you know, again, I, I continue to ask my question, what is Rick Warren? And after listening to this, I'm questioning his credentials as a pastor because ain't no real pastor who really, truly loves the Lord and loves God's Word can, can twist Scripture like this. Okay? Politicians know how to spin, and he's a great spinner. So let, let's um, we'll, we'll pick up the, the story here in... Here we go. Everything goes wrong. All right, hang on a second. Let me back it up. Well, welcome to Christmas at Saddleback. I'm glad you're here. You know, uh, have you ever had one of those days where everything goes wrong for you? Nothing goes as planned and you think, I just shouldn't have got out of bed this morning. I had a day like that three days ago. Uh, in the first place, I had to stay up all night because I was finishing a writing deadline. So I really never got to bed as I was starting the new day. And as it came time for breakfast, I, I went downstairs to the kitchen to make a protein shake. You don't get a body like this by accident. You know, it, it takes discipline. So I'm making a protein shake. And uh, I, I didn't have the lid on real tight. And I hit the high-speed button, and the lid popped off, and it all blew up all over me. And I'm thinking, this is going to be a bad day. So I get all cleaned up from the blended shake, and I get in my car, and I go out. I'm driving up to L.A. to make some hospital visits, to visit some sick people. And I get stuck in traffic up on the 405, and we're at a dead stop. And uh, a, a young kid coming up from behind doesn't recognize that we've stopped. And he plows into me full speed. 
Now, fortunately, I had the foot on the brake, so I didn't hit the guy in front of me, but it pancaked his car. He was okay, uh, but uh, I did hit the, hit the steering wheel with my head, got a little concussion. I was wearing a seatbelt, uh, but, uh, you know, it was okay. But I, I pulled over to the side of the road, and I'm thinking, this is not a good day. Who's he preaching about so far? This is his Christmas sermon that broadcast on Fox News, okay, which has become an annual event. You know, Saddleback's Christmas message every year. And right now, who's he preaching about? Uh, Rick Warren. He's preaching about Rick Warren, which, by the way, he, he, he talks about himself gooder than anybody I've ever seen. <laughs> so I decide to turn on of the radio and listen to a little talk radio while I'm waiting for the highway patrol. You know where I'm going with this. <laughs> and, uh, and sure enough, there's a guy on the radio screaming his head off saying he wishes that Rick Warren was dead. <laughs> this is not a good day. <laughs> so I, I get to UCLA hospital and I, I get checked out. And while I'm waiting for a CT scan, all of a sudden I re realize that in one day, I'm overextended, I'm blended, I'm rear-ended, and I'm offended. <laughs> and I'm like, I should have just stayed in bed, you know? I should have just stayed in bed. And I thought, I need a silent night. Forget everybody else, I need a silent night. If you've ever had a day like that, or a life, or a week, or a month, or a year, you picked a good service to come to for Christmas because we're going to look at what do you do when your plans fall through. We're going to look at the Christmas story from a little different angle when God changes your plans. We're going to look at the Christmas story from the angle of what to do when God changes your plans. I had no idea that that's what the story was about. Did you know that, John? <laughs> haven't heard that one. Hey, yeah, yeah. We continue. We'll talk about that in a minute. All right, hang on a second here. I'm going to fast forward now. That's the nice thing that uh, I TiVoed this. So, and the funny thing is, is that this particular uh, sermon had uh, how do we say it? commercials? <laughs> so yeah, we have to fast forward through the commercials here, and uh, let's uh, let's pick up where Rick Warren left off. Here we go. The birth of Jesus 2008 years ago messed up everybody's plans. It did? I did not know that the birth of Jesus, the announcement of the angels, that today is born a, to you is born a savior in the city of David who was Christ the king, right? Um, that that messed up everyone's plans. It certainly messed up Mary and Joseph's plan. They were just a young couple engaged to be married, making their wedding preparations. All they wanted to do is settle down, start a family, and live life. And one day an angel shows up and says, Mary, uh, we have a few changes in your plan, uh, but they're pretty big changes, so you need to sit down. Uh, number one, uh, you're gonna get pregnant before the wedding day, and it isn't gonna be Joseph. Right. Oh, and Mary, here's the second part of the plan. Something's going to happen to you that has never been done before in human history and will never be done again since. Uh, and it's, we're going to call it a virgin birth. Right. We're going to call it a virgin birth? Does this sound anything remotely like the announcement of Gabriel when he met with 
I mean, when he met with Mary, she's like, oh man, my plans are screwed up. No, when this is all done, she says, I'm the handmaiden of the Lord. And, and he's picking, he, so he's covering this from the angle of this really messed up her plans. Oh, and Mary, there's one other part to the plan. The baby you're going to be carrying, it's uh, God. Right. Would you believe that story? The angel came and delivered it, and God messed up Mary and Joseph's plan royally. Then there was a guy named Herod. He was the king of Judea. Now, Herod was a crackpot. He was paranoid because he was king of Judea over Israel, and he wasn't even Jewish. He had been appointed by the Roman Empire. And everybody hated Herod, and he was scared to death of losing control, scared to death of being overthrown, and he was so paranoid that he had everybody around him murdered to preserve his position. He had his wife murdered. He had his mother murdered. Herod had his brother-in-law murdered. He even had his two sons murdered. He was so afraid of losing control. And when he heard, today is born in Bethlehem, the king of the Jews, he went berserk. And he ordered that all children under two years of age in Bethlehem be slaughtered. That didn't really change his plans because it sounds like, you know, he just did his typical modus operandi, right? Anybody who threatens Herod's uh, reign, they get uh, their head killed and lopped off. They're dead. How did that mess up Herod's plans? Seriously. I just ask a question. How did this mess up Herod's plans? Didn't, did it? Herod heard that there was a threat to his kingdom, so what did he do? He did the same thing he always does. He kills people. And this happened at Jesus' birth? Yeah, actually, after Jesus was born, um, you would remember the whole story of the Magi? Okay, the Magi, they show up in Jerusalem first, and they want to know where the king of the Jews is supposed to be born, and Herod is, like, freaking out, okay? And uh, and they basically say, in Bethlehem, so Herod tells the Magi, uh, once you find the child, come back and tell me where he is so that I can go and worship him, too. And he's going, I'm not going to worship him, I'm going to kill him, Right. And so what happened is, is that God warned the Magi in a dream not to return via Jerusalem. Bethlehem and Jerusalem are not that far apart. So they, they, they went, they left the country through another route. And then, uh, and then in a vision, God tells Joseph to pick up the family and move and go to Egypt, get out of town. Okay. So, um, you know, is this really a story about when your plans don't come through? Or is this a story about God's plan to save all of mankind through himself? But God changed Herod's plans. The religious leaders had their plans changed. They were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for an anointed one. They were looking for a savior, but they were actually looking for a political savior. They wanted a leader who would rebel. They wanted a revolutionary. They wanted a political activist. They wanted somebody to throw off the chains of the Roman Empire. They wanted Jesus to be Che Savara, right? Viva la Revolution. And give Israel its freedom. And all of a sudden, God sends Jesus, and Jesus is saying, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who despise you. Love your neighbors yourself. In fact, you must love everybody. You're not, a, you're not allowed to hate anybody. Sure changed their plans. The innkeeper had his plans changed. We know he certainly hadn't planned for Mary and Joseph to show up because there was no room at the inn. He was all filled up, no capacity. And so the angels uh, had predicted this, but the innkeeper weren't 
wasn't ready for it, and uh, he messed up their plans. Uh, sounds like he's stumbling on his script there. Um, he went off script because that is not really true to the story. Okay, we continue. And then, of course, the shepherds had their plans messed up. Uh, really, the shepherds had their plans messed up. You know, well, well, you know, the angels appear and then, you know, hey, man, I don't know if I want to go and check out what these angels are talking Because I had plans for tonight. I mean, they were looking forward to a, another quiet night with the sheep. <laughs> Sitting out there on the hills of Bethlehem. And all of a sudden, the sky lights up. And it becomes bright all around, and the angels come down, and a, a, a choir starts singing and saying, The Savior of the world has been born in Bethlehem. You better get over there and take a look. Messed up the shepherd's plans. Did it really mess up their plans? No, it. Uh, were they planning on you know sitting in front of the fire and watching a little TiVo that night? Were they already in their PJs and, you know... Yeah, I don't know. I I already had plans, man. You know, but do what is the angels, man? They're messing up my plans. Has God ever changed your plans? Has God ever messed up your plans? How many of you had your plans changed in 2008? Can I see your hands? Yeah, the rest of you are liars. <laughs> I made a list of all of the changes in plans that I had this year. It was a long list. It was actually quite funny when I looked at all the things I had planned to do that didn't get done in 2008. Now, I'm not saying that everything that happens in your life is God's ideal will. It's not. Most of the things that happen in your life, these problems that you have, they're your fault. You see, we live in a broken world. Uh, they're your fault, but we live in a broken world. How about they're your fault because you're a sinner? We live on a, uh, on a planet where nothing works correctly. Our bodies don't work correctly. Our relationships don't work correctly. Nothing works. Because of sin. 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 Say the word S-I-N. It's, it's three letters, one syllable. Come on. On, on, on. on earth. Correctly. All the time. And so we hurt other people, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. Other people hurt us, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. Not everything that happens in your life is God's will. People say, well, must be God's will. God's will is not rape. God's will is not evil. God's will is not sin. God's will is not murder. God hates these kind of things. And that's why we're to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because God's will is done perfectly in heaven. It's rarely done on earth. Because most of the time I'm doing my will, you're doing your will. We're doing what we want to do, not what God wants us to do. And that's why we have so many problems and why we have wars and strife and conflict and prejudice and bigotry and all these things. Because we're doing what we want to do instead of what God wants us to do. All right, let's go with that. Let's go with that. He's, he's at this point described, a, a, I would say, a substantial problem, right? Okay, so we, the, the world doesn't work right. There's rape, there's murder, there's incest. There's all these, these things that are happening. God hates it. And, and so what's the solution to the problem that you've just posed, Rick Warren? What, what, what's the solution that we need here? You know, he's described something of the law and sin in our, in our problem. It, you know, I would say he hasn't gone far enough, but we'll just go with it. What, what, what's the solution? But there are some situations in life where God specifically changes the plans in your life because he's got something else he wants to do. The Bible says this in the book of uh, Proverbs 19 verse 21. You can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. In other words, you make all your plans. Okay, 
time to uh, do some fact checking. You know what's funny is is that Rick Warren being what do we do with politicians? Remember when they have debates or they give a speech or something like that? They do fact checking, right? Rick Warren being more of a politician than a pastor. Whenever he says something that the Bible says or God's word says, we have to actually do some fact checking. And so he's quote he says he's quoting uh, Proverbs nineteen twenty one. Uh, let's uh, pull out the Bible here. Okay, Proverbs nineteen. And what are the what are the number one rules for understanding God's word? The three rules. You remember, John? It's location, location, location. Well, that's that's for real estate. It's context, context, context. For when you're reading God's word. Okay. Um, so Proverbs nineteen twenty one. We'll do a little bit of uh, uh, of context work here. Um, this starting at verse eighteen. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Well, that's good. A man of great wrath will penal, uh, will pay the penalty. For if you deliver him, you will only have to do it again. You will not only have to do. You will only have to do it again. Listen to advice and accept instruct and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. And many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Many are the plans of the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Okay, so these are proverbs. So okay, just doing a little fact checking here. And what does he say? This says, "And um, you want to make, but ultimately." Okay, let me back this up again, just a second here. You can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. Is that's the New Living Translation that he's quoting? All right, we'll we'll say that's kind of in the ballpark. Okay, we'll do some more fact-checking as we go along. ...will prevail. In other words, you make all your plans you want to make, but ultimately, God is in control of where history is headed. And God has a plan, and he has a purpose for your life. Had to throw that in there, didn't he? You know, by the way, Saddleback Church is on Purpose Drive. Yeah, they've got their own... God has never made a per- person he didn't have a purpose for. And if you're... Yeah, the thing is, is that, okay, that, now that all sounds good, okay? God has never made a purpose, a person that he didn't have a purpose for. What was the purpose of Pharaoh in the story of uh, Moses and uh, the children of uh, Israel versus Egypt? What was Pharaoh's purpose? Think about it, okay? Pharaoh, he resisted and absolutely fought against God, right? And as a result of it, Egypt had all these plagues befall them. And ultimately, he lost his life and his army in the, uh, in the Red Sea, right? What was the purpose of his life? Was it to glorify God? Well, God truly was glorified, but uh, he was a backhanded example of that, wasn't he? How about the people of Jericho? When the children of Israel went into uh, Israel and they circled Jericho, and there's only one person who survived, and that was a prostitute, right? What was the purpose of the lives of the people who were living in Jericho at that time? Anybody? You know, so, I mean, this sounds great, doesn't it? But when you apply just a little bit of critical thinking to it, the whole thing falls apart. Okay, we continue. If you're alive, if your heart is beating, it means God has a purpose for your life. He made you to love you. God has never made a person he didn't love. God has never made a person Jesus didn't come to die for. God has never made a person that he doesn't want with him in heaven. 
And his plan and purpose is a good plan, and we're going to look at it tonight. But before you can understand God's plan, you've got to understand sometimes why he changes your plans. And tonight, we're going to look at those three reasons. And we're going to look at three things you need to do. Okay, here it is, law. Okay, remember, he said we've got this problem, right? You know, the world is broken, God hates sin, and, you know, sometimes people do bad things to you purposely or unintentionally. Sometimes you do bad things to other people purposely or unintentionally. Things are broken, nothing works right, right? And so the solution is he's going to give us three things that we need to do. Is one repent. I Well, let's, we're going to find out. When your plan falls through after this. Now, at that first Christmas, 2008 years ago, everybody had their plans changed. What about you? What do you do when your plans fall through, when God changes your plans? You need to remember three things. Now, remember, this is a Christmas sermon. First, when God changes your plans, you need to understand that God is trying to get your attention. That's the first thing. So first thing you've got to do is understand God's trying to get your attention. So it's like a two-by-four. Your plans get changed. It's God throwing rocks at you and say, hey, hey, wake up. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get your attention. God whispers to us in our pleasure. He shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone. Pain is God saying, hello, are you listening? Is anybody down there? Is anybody paying attention to me? Now, God's plan for Mary and Joseph was so incredible, so fantastic, so unbelievable he had to do some kind of supernatural thing to get their attention. I mean, you wouldn't believe it if you had heard that story just in your mind. So he had to do something supernatural just to get their attention. <sighs> so God sent an angel and said, this is really going to happen to you. Now, God doesn't have to send an angel to you because he's not going to make you the mother or the, the stepfather of the savior of the world. God doesn't have to send an angel to you. You just have to listen. So what we're really, we're not even really teaching what the Bible says about Christmas here, about what happened. We're not proclaiming Gabriel's message to uh, Mary. We're not proclaiming uh, Mary's response in the Magnificat. We're not proclaiming Joseph and the message that he received from Gabriel. And, and, and we're, not, we're not teaching what the Bible says. We're just allegorizing the story. And make and basically saying that this is about God changing people's plans, and so this that's what the story is about. This story is not about God playing changing plans for anybody. It's not. That's not what this is about. But most of us are pretty poor listeners. We have spiritual ADD, and when God tries to talk to us, we're too busy talking ourselves. People say, "Well, I never hear God talk to me." It's because you're not listening. Yeah, this is an important part. I want you to listen to this for a second. He says that people say God never talks to me, and Rick Warren is now saying because God, because you're not listening. Listen to what he says here. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this claim. God talks to me all the time. In fact, I'm going to say God talks to me on a daily basis. You want to know how he does it? Through his word. You want to know what God has to say? Open up the Bible. Believe me when I tell you he speaks in his word. But that's not where Rick Warren is going to point people. Watch where he points them. When was the last time you sat down by yourself quietly and for 20 minutes just said, God, is there anything you want to say to me? And you just sit there and be quiet. I doubt you've ever even done that in your life. So is this Rick Warren's version of the Lectio Divina? Sit quietly for 20 minutes and ask God, hey, is there anything you want to say to me? 
Anything, and then apparently any thought that comes to your head, your head then is that is God apparently talking. Yeah, God has a lot to say to me. That's why I read the Bible. That's why you should be reading the Bible. And the reason why we don't ever hear from God is we don't listen to him. We're too busy listening to the radio, listening to the TV, using the Blackberry, writing emails, talking to other people. God gets a busy signal. God gets call waiting when he tries to talk to you. God says this in Psalm 81, 13. He says, I wish my people would listen to me. Oh, good night. Psalm 81, 13. God is apparently saying, and remember how he said this in context. He says that the context of this is that you don't take time to actually listen to God. And he's equating that to you sitting quietly for 20 minutes and then asking God if he has anything he'd like to say. And his proof text for this is Psalm 81, 13. Well, let's take a look at what Psalm 81, 13 says. Psalm 81. And remember, context, context, context. So we're going to start at verse 11. But my people did not listen to my voice. Oh, let me back it up. Okay. Oh, this is a great path. Let's read the whole thing. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre, and the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, and on the feast day. For it is the statute of Israel, for it is a statute for Israel, a rule of God, the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder from the basket. In distress, you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you in the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. There shall be no bowed. Uh, you shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Okay, what's this about so far? It's God reminding Israel about who he is and what he's done and tell, admonishing them not to follow after false idols. That's the context of the psalm. Verse 11. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord will cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed on you with the finest of the wheat and, uh, and, and with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. So verse 13 says, oh, that my people would listen to me. And what's it in context about? Idolatry. Okay. And Rick Warren, he doesn't quote the whole verse. He quotes a verse fragment because the whole verse itself, verse itself says, oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. But Rick Warren just quotes one part of the verse and basically says, I wish my people would listen to me. And what's the context of that? Sitting quietly for 20 minutes and asking God, hey, do you got anything you'd like to say? Is that what that passage is teaching? Let me back it up. Here we go. Too busy listening to the radio, listening to the TV, using the Blackberry, writing emails, talking to other people. God gets a busy signal. God gets call waiting when he tries to talk to you. God says this in Psalm 81, 13. He says, I wish my people would listen to me. Now, why does God want you and me to listen to him? Is that what that says? No, it doesn't. When you read it in context, it doesn't say what Rick Warren just said it says. To save us from a lot of problems. You see, God can see what you can't see. 
He has a perspective you don't have. He can save you a lot of trouble. God already knew that the economic crisis was coming long before it ever happened. And God already knows everything that's going to happen in 2009 before we even get there. If you're ever driving up in the mountains and you're trying to go around a curvy road and you get behind a slow car and you often want to pass that car, but you can't see around the curve because you don't have the perspective. And I've always thought it'd be handy if there were a helicopter up there just hovering above my car saying, Rick, there's nobody coming the opposite way for half a mile. Go ahead and pass that guy. Or don't pass him because there's a semi-Mac, semi-truck going to come this way at you and you're going to get creamed. God has a perspective you don't have. And if you'll listen to him, it'll save you a lot of trouble. When you were a kid, your parents had a perspective you didn't have. And How do we listen to God, Rick? The, sound like God the fortune teller. No kidding. You know, you know I'm going to just sit quietly and uh, ask God if he has anything he'd like to say. You know, in fact, we should, we should invite God onto the program. God, do you have anything you'd like to say? Oh, uh, I should open up the word, right. Okay, got it. Often they'd tell you to do something or not to do something, and you didn't understand. You say, why? And they didn't always explain it to you either, they, just because I told you so. But the truth is, they had a perspective you didn't have. And probably when you were young, your parents said, don't touch the hot stove. I know it's pretty, but don't touch it. What'd you do? Touch it. What do you do? You get burned. God doesn't want you to get burned. In this book, God's Word, the Bible, there are all kinds of uh, principles and, and commandments and things like that that God has said, I want you to do these things, and I don't want you to do these things. And if you do these things and don't do these things, it's going to go a whole lot smoother for you. So the Bible is reduced down to a bunch of laws, principles, and things that you need to keep so that your life will run a lot smoother. The purpose of the law is to show us our sin. Romans chapter 10 says. Romans chapter 3 says. Purpose of the law is to show us our sin. He says that the Bible has all these rules and principles that if you obey and follow them, your life will go a lot smoother. Is this the good news? It's terrible news. This is terrible news. So, hey, you know, if your life is not going smoothly, if you're experiencing problems right now, it's your fault because you're not applying the right principles. You're just not obeying enough. You should follow the law better. Yeah, God probably hates you. That's why you're having problems in your life, because you're not doing enough of the right things. And typically we say, well, you know what? I think I know better than God. I know more than he does. And so I'm going to go ahead and touch the stove. Whenever God tells you not to do something in the Bible or tells you to do it, it's always for your own good. God is a God of love, and he always acts in love for you. And he's not some cosmic killjoy in the sky. He's not some uh, you know, a universal bully who wants to deal your life a bummer. He's trying to protect you. He's saying, I don't want you to get burned. He's trying to protect you. Hey, hey, just listen to me, guys. I'm trying to protect you. Do what I told you to do and you'll be protected. I thought Jesus came to earth and he conquered sin, death, and the devil. He protected us by completely fulfilling the law for us. Dying and rising from the dead, forgiving us of our sins, declaring us to be righteous by faith. It sounds like the, the message the Pharisees had. Yeah, exactly. I don't want you to have a broken heart. I don't want you to have a broken body. I don't want you to have a broken family. I don't want you to have broken relationships. I don't want you to have broken dreams. I don't want you to get burned. You know what, Rick? I, that's already happened to me. 
Everything you've listed, that's already happened to me. And I bet it's happened to a bunch of people listening, too. You're just giving me law. Where's the gospel? This is supposed to be a Christmas message. I have a perspective you don't have. And God is trying to get your attention. Now, the second thing that that you need to remember, when God changes your plans, is this. God has a better plan. Oh, okay. So you got to understand that uh, God's trying to get your attention and that God has a better plan. God doesn't change your plans unless he's got a better plan. Now, the Bible says this in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. Okay, this is a classic twist passage. We've gone through this one before, but we'll go through it again. Jeremiah 29. says this. I know what I'm planning for you, says the Lord. I have good plans for you, not plans to hurt you. I will give you hope and a good future. That's what God wants to do in your life in 2009. Really, that's what God wants to do in my life in 2009. Yet, if I read Jeremiah chapter 29 in context, okay, remember, context, context, context. Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 1, says this, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who was this letter written to? Was it written to you and me here in 2009, or was it written specifically for the surviving elders of the exiles? I'd go with B. Go with B, yep. Okay. This was after King uh, Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elia, Elash, uh, uh, sorry, Elasa, the son of Shaphan, uh, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Okay, so this was written specifically to the elders, the exiles. Uh, are, folks, are anybody here listening to Fighting for the Faith today? Have you are you a surviving elder of the exile uh, under King Nebuchadnezzar? If so, send me an email. I want to talk to you. Okay, so this was a letter sent by J- uh, Jeremiah, and this is what the lo- the letter says: "Thus says the Lord of Hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon." That's the opening to the letter. If you, if folks, if I, if you were to go back through and listen, read the letters that I've written. Okay, to different people. We have a standard way of which we address letters. You know, you know, to Chris Rosebro, you know, da 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 fighting for the faith, P.O. Box, you know, whatever, da da da. Right? Dear Chris. The letter begins, right? It has a date on it. It says, Dear Chris. Who's who's the letter written to if it says Dear Chris? And that'd be you, Chris. Okay, so here's the opening to this letter, and it says uh, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who is this written to? The exiles of the exile. Right, yeah. Okay. So uh, it says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Why is it telling us to build houses and plant gardens? Okay. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Why didn't he point that out? Oh, because if you read it in context, you realize this wasn't a general thing that applies to people generally. 
Okay, uh, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare that you find that you will find your welfare. Welfare, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel: Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the uh, to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. How come Rick didn't tell us about that part? Okay. Well, here we get to verses 10 and 11. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Okay, so he's writing to the exiles of Jerusalem, right? And he says after 70 years, he will bring them back to Jerusalem. For the for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, the plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and you will come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me and you will seek me with all of your heart and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Who was this written to? Was it written to us in 2009? It does reveal something about God and his mercy, right? Okay, even to people in exile, people who were punished for the idolatries of their forebears, right? So much so that they, God wiped them off the face of the earth for a little bit of time and sent them into exile. And God here lovingly tells them that he has plans for their welfare and for their good. But was that written to you? Was it written to me? No, it wasn't. It is time for people like Rick Warren to stop quoting these passages out of context and making God's word say something it didn't say. I'm sorry, but this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, this, is not, this does not support his premise or his second point that God always has a better plan for you. This is not what the Bible teaches. He says, my plan for your life is a good plan. It's a plan of hope, and it's a plan that will give you a future. How is God's plan better than my plan? Oh, a lot of ways. Let me just give you two, three. Uh, it's bigger. It's more rewarding. Uh, it's longer lasting. Uh, what is it? Is it some kind of a stick of chewing gum? Bigger, better, longer lasting? Now, I do have to admit, it's sometimes harder. Does it hurt my teeth? Listen to what he's saying here. He, he quotes a pa- Bible v- passage completely out of context, twists it to say something it doesn't say, to support a point that he's trying to make that isn't even in the scripture, and then says, oh, God has bigger plans for you, and it's bigger, better, longer lasting, and harder. It's, it's for three easy payments of fifty nine ninety five. can I get this bigger, this bigger plan? Than your plan. First, God's plan is bigger than yours. Now, I don't know what kind of dreamer you are. You maybe have big dreams for your life. But no matter how big you dream, God's plan for your life is is bigger. You have no idea what God wants to do in your life. You don't even see the talent, the ability, the capacity that God has given you. He sees it all. You don't. Boy, this is blowing smoke up something. Good night. This is the Christmas story. Yeah, apparently the Christmas story is all about, you know, God sees all of your talent has a big plan for you. Really, what I mean, what if you're serving God in your vocation and you're uh, and you pick up trash for a living? What about big? What about the big plans there and all that talent he was talking about? Oh, I'm sorry. This is a story. This is a this is a lie that only plays well in rich Orange County suburbs. And God says, I have a plan for your life. It's much bigger. God's plan for Mary and Joseph was, I want to bless the whole world. Their plan was get married. There's a little difference between those two. God's plan for Mary and Joseph was a whole lot bigger. And not only is it bigger, it's more rewarding. 
You see, when you get in God's plan, you go, this is it. This is what I was made to do. It fits. It feels good. And then you have the significance. And you have the meaning and the purpose in life. And all the money in the world can't give you meaning. But God's plan for your life is rewarding. And by the way, uh, that reward lasts forever. It's an understatement to say that God has long-range plans for you. In fact, the Bible says this in 1 Corinthians 2, 9. No one has ever seen or heard or even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Oh, boy. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 2. Uh you know, I think what well, he's he's quoted one, two, three. This is his fourth, literally his fourth uh, verse that he's quoting, and every single time it's a different translation. If it, this one's from the Living Bible, so it's not even a translation. Um, so according to the Living Translation, no one has ever seen or heard or even imagined what wonderful things God has prepared for those who love Him. And what's the context here? He's trying to sell people on the fact that God's got a bigger plan for your life than you even have, right? So does 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 teach that God has a bigger plan for your life than you do? Let me read starting at verse 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understand this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written... What no eye has seen or what ear has heard nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except for the Spirit of God. So what is this talking about? No one comprehends or imagine what God has prepared for those who love him? It's about God. It's search. It's the wisdom of God. It has to do with Christ Himself. It's not that God's plan is bigger than your plan. It's that God is is, is greater and more more than you can even imagine. It's about God. <sighs> God has an eternal plan for your life that goes on further than this planet here. It's bigger. It's better. It's more rewarding. But I do have to admit to you. God's plan for your life is sometimes harder at times. It's not always easy. And sometimes it's confusing. And sometimes you go, I don't understand why this is happening to me. Why me? Why now? Why here? And God doesn't owe you an explanation for everything that happens in your life. But he does have a plan. I mean, think about Mary. God had this plan for her life. God was going to use her to bring Jesus Christ into the world. And yet there was some pain involved in it. First, imagine she had to put up with skepticism, enormous criticism, and gossip for nine months. She's walking around her community saying, I'm a virgin, I'm pregnant, and it's going to be the Son of God. Would you believe your friend if she said that? Um, she, was, uh, she took all the ridicule of an unwed mother in that day, and it was painful. And then... She went to full-term pregnancy, and on the last few days before she is to deliver, including the last day, she's taking a long journey by donkey. By the way, the donkey's never mentioned in Scripture. She could have been walking. Ladies, think about that. Anybody want to give a testimony of how that might feel? Nine months, full-term pregnancy. Sit on a donkey for a few days. No. 
Very painful. And then she delivers the baby by herself in a stable, all alone, with just chickens and horses and... Where does it say she was completely alone? What, did Joseph bail on her? You know, hey, honey, I got to go outside and get a, have a cigarette. You know, good luck. Where does it say she was alone? Her cattle and donkeys. She wasn't at home with her mother and her aunts, and it's her first baby. God's had a plan for her life, and it was a good plan, but it was difficult. And Mary must have asked herself a thousand times, why God? Why me? Why now? Why this? And God didn't tell her. It was only until later, not until later, did she understand why it happened the way it did and fully understood it. You're going through some stuff right now in your life. I don't know what it is. Maybe a financial crisis, maybe a health crisis. Maybe your marriage is going through some rocky ground right now. Maybe you just got laid off. I don't know what you're dealing with, but I'll tell you this, God does. And you don't understand why it's happening to you, but God does. In fact, the Bible says this. Jesus said it in John 13, verse 7. He said, you don't understand now what I am doing, but you will understand it later. Oh, good night. Okay, John 13. So apparently, see, you don't understand the things that you're going through right now, but Jesus is telling you literally in John 13, 7, that uh, you don't understand uh, what I'm doing now, but you'll understand it later. That's is that what the Bible teaches in John 13? It's you know because it was addressing people who didn't understand what God was doing in their lives. Here's what it says: um, context, context, context. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them. And the towel was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward afterward you will understand. But Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet, but, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. So when Jesus said, uh, you don't understand what I'm doing, but afterwards you will understand, was that because you don't understand what God's plan is for your life? No, not at all. Jesus was saying that specifically to Peter regarding the fact that he was washing his feet. This passage doesn't say anything about you not understanding God's plans for your life. Nothing. Yet Rick Warren is ripping this completely out of context to make it say something that it doesn't say. You've got to learn to trust him. Listen to this. So uh, how's Rick Warren doing so far on his, uh, his teaching of Scripture? Pretty good? No. No, no. it's 
pretty darn awful. We continue. When God messes up your plans, he's trying to do three things. He's trying to get your attention. He's trying to tell you he has a better plan. And here's the most important one of all. He wants you to learn to trust him. Imagine that. What about the forgiveness of your sins? Yeah, trust him for what? Faith is trust. It's trust in Christ, but for what? Test of faith that this was to Joseph. If your fiance came to you and told you that story, would you believe it? Imagine the test of faith that Mary went through. God so changed their plans in such an unusual way, all they could do was trust. Now that's a good thing, because that is the only way you can please God. Did you? Okay, yeah, all right. Well, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Let's see what he does with this here. He's mangled God's word. Maybe he'll land on his feet somehow. Know that? I want you to listen to me right now as if your life depended on it, because it does. What I'm about to tell you... Why should we trust you, Rick? Because you completely mangle God's word to say things that it doesn't say. ...has eternal implications. It's how you please God. How do you please God and get to heaven? By promising to be good? No. By, by being perfect? No, you can't be. You never will be perfect. Yet heaven's perfect and you're not, and neither am I. The Bible says there's only one way you can please God. It's not through religion. It's not through rituals. It's not through rules. It's not through regulations. It's through a relationship of trusting God. Through a relationship of trusting God? What about repentance and faith? Having faith. Faith is the only way you can please God. Okay, what does it mean? I didn't say that. The Bible did. Look at this verse. Hebrews 11? The Bible says in Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It just can't be done. It's the only way you can please God, by faith. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. All right, so here we go. He's, he, you know, Rick Warren is a mixed bag. It's, com- it's completely a mixed bag. Here we've got one, two, three, four passages that were completely ripped out of context that tell us nothing about what the Bible teaches, and now he's telling us that without faith it's impossible to please God, and to which we have to say, yeah, that's correct. That's true. But what are we trusting him for, Rick? What what's our faith in him for? What's it about? It's not he's we got to trust notice that the trust that he's telling us to have is to trust God's bigger plan for our life. Okay? Very different than trusting Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. So let, let's see if he brings that up though. You seek God in faith, and that is pleasing to God. So what do you do when your plans fall through? When life doesn't make sense, you do two things. You seek God and you trust God. When things aren't working out the way you plan, first you seek God. Now listen, you don't seek the solution to your problem. You don't seek an explanation to your problem. You don't seek relief from your problem. You seek God and he can help you with all the rest. The Bible says this, Man. Okay. Does he say how to seek God? No. So notice he brings up faith. Okay. That trust in Christ. But the context of it is not trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. What does Jesus say in Luke 24? That repentance and the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in Jesus' name to all nations starting in Jerusalem. Right? 
Okay, Paul says that the gospel, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, the good news is that Christ died for our sins. Okay, so the problem that is presented in Scripture that humanity suffers from is a sin problem. At this point, Rick Warren is preaching a sermon where the problem isn't our sin problem. The problem is uh, that our, the plans for our life haven't gone as, as we had hoped. And so we're going to just trust God that he'll work it out because he has a bigger plan for us. Is that the same kind of faith that Scripture calls us to? Not at all. Not at all. It's, this is something completely different. So now he's going back to Jeremiah chapter 29. We were just there. Who was that written to? The exiles. So let's, let me back this up again so we can kind of hear what he's talking about here. Here we go. First, you seek God. Now listen, you don't seek the solution to your problem. You don't seek an explanation to your problem. You don't seek relief from your problem. You seek God. And he can help you with all the rest. The Bible says this in Jeremiah. God says, you will seek me and you'll find me when you seek for me with all your heart. That was written to the exiles. And it's not, oh man, this isn't trust. He's turning it into a work now. This isn't, this isn't salvation received by grace through faith. Okay. So faith now is when you seek God with all your heart, which is law. What does it mean? It means I change my mind and I say, God, I'm no longer going to go my way. I'm going to seek you. So change your mind. That's repentance. Isn't that what metanoia means in the Greek? Repent It means to change your mind. So it says, I'm going to seek you, right? I'm not going to do what I want to do. I want to do what you want to do. I'm not going to go with my plan for my life. I'm going to go with your plan for my life. I'm going to stop being self-centered. I'm going to become God-centered. There's a word for this. It is the word repent. The Greek word is the word metanoia, which means to change your mind. It's a, a, a change of your mind. And I so repentance, so faith now is trusting God for the bigger plan. And repentance is saying that I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to abandon my plan for my life and go with God's plan. Notice how he's redefined repentance and faith. I change the way I think. The way I think about God, the way I think about myself, the way I think about life, about the past, the present, the future, about my sins, about other people. Oh, there it is, sins. In passing, just throw that in there. It changes all everything. That's what repentance is. It's saying, God, I'm going to think the way you think about life and go your way. And I seek God with all my heart. The other thing I do is I trust God. And when I don't understand what's going on, I trust his wisdom. I trust his love. I trust his promises. I trust that he knows better than I Promises to do what? I do what's best for me. The Bible has a wonderful promise in Romans chapter 8. It says this. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. And only those who trust in Christ have repented of their sins and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins are the ones who can love God. Why? Because that's given to them by God. They, as God who sanctifies them, raises them from the dead. Okay? And are called according to his purpose for them. Now, this is not a promise for everybody. It's a promise for those who say, I want to follow God's way. I want to repent and turn his way. I want to seek him and I want to trust him. But it says when we do that and we say, I want to live for God's purpose, a, a purpose-driven life, 
God says then, I will cause all things to work together for good. So if you agree to live a purpose-driven life, then God is going to work everything out for you. Law. Now notice that verse does not say all things are good, because they're not. There's a lot of bad in the world. There's a lot of evil in the world. You had a lot of bad things happen to you this last year. Not everything is good in the world, but God says, I can turn it all for good. I can bring good out of bad. Anybody can bring good out of good, but God can bring good out of bad. He loves to turn crucifixions into resurrections. And that thing in your life that you think, man, that was totally bad. So he's comparing the bad things that are happening in your life to a crucifixion and a resurrection. He's allegorizing the crucifixion and the resurrection. God can bring good out of it if you will seek him and you will trust him. Now, every time your plans get changed, it is always a test. What kind of test is it? God is testing your faith. And he's asking you this simple question. Who am I going to trust? Who am I going to trust? Am I going to trust me or am I going to trust God? Now, I'm not going to trust me because I haven't done that good of a job with my life so far. But I am going to trust God because he can see farther ahead and he loves me and he knows what's best. You see, the truth is you don't know what's going to happen in 2009. And anybody who tells you they know, they're dead wrong. Only God knows. I know exactly what's going to happen in 2009. I'm going to sin. <sighs> but we do know some certain things about 2009 we can be sure about. Number one, I can tell, guarantee you God's going to change your plans. Count on it. Number two, God has a plan and a purpose for your life, and that plan and purpose is bigger, better, more meaningful than your plan. Kick the tires on God's plan. You might like it. It might feel like a Maserati compared to your broken-down VW plans. It may be harder at times, but it's worth the cost. And I can tell you this, that no matter what you face in 2008 or 2009, you're not going to go through it on your own. God will be with you. You will never be alone. And I can also tell you, we know this for sure, that cooperating with God's plan is the only way to really live. Yeah. Pelagian talk. Live. Any other way is just existing. And we run into all kinds of dead ends. The Bible says there's the way that seems right, but it ends in death. It's a dead end. And how many decisions have you made in life you thought were the right thing to do, and it ended up being a dead end? In a relationship, in a... Any remorse for sins here at this point? None. No remorse for sins. No confronted with your sinfulness and your wickedness. Nothing of that. This is repentanceless. He's redefined repentance to saying I'm going to basically change my mind about my plans and go with God's plan for my life? Seek him with your whole heart. Yeah, law. I can't business and a investment in so many other areas now if you say god i'm going to seek you and i'm going to trust you god if if that's law talk again if you if 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 god promises to fulfill his plan for your life in fact the bible says this in psalm 138 the lord will work out his plans for my life for his faithful love endures forever. Every single time that man quotes the Bible passage, you have to look it up because, like a politician, he seems to have problems when it comes to fact-checking. Okay, Psalm 38. 
Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the you, your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. It's a great psalm. But is it does it teach what he said it would teach? Notice he's never giving us a coherent thought in scripture. He's never actually reading something in context to give us what what it is that God is saying in that passage. Instead, he's just cherry-picking sentences or sentence fragments to string along in his little parade of what he says God's word says. You know, the devil is a great twister of God's word. And he made me. Now, how do I know when I'm following my plan instead of God's plan for my life? Well, there are always three warning signs that you're following your plan. Well, this ought to be rich. Fatigue, frustration, and fear. Oh, so if you have fatigue, frustration, and fear, you are you may not be following God's plan for your life. <sighs> the reason you're tired all the time, the reason you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, the reason you're fatigued all the time is you're doing things God never intended for you to do. You're following your plan, not God's plan. Jesus said, take my yoke on you. My burden is easy and light. And what he was he referring to? He was referring to salvation. He was referring to the fact that salvation is a free gift. What must we be doing to do the works of God? Jesus said, believe in the one whom the Father has sent. That is the work of God, the singular work of God, to believe. Talk about an easy burden. Talk about Jesus has done it all for us. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's, he's turned what Jesus is, has done on the cross for our sins and for our salvation because the message of Christmas is that God sent us a Savior. Apparently, in, G, in Rick Warren's view of Christmas, God sent us somebody who will make, our, make the plans of our life. He, gave us a, he, he sent us a, big plan, a bigger plan maker or a bigger plan giver. And it will be such a bigger and greater and better plan that it will be an easy plan. And when you're over-fatigued all the time, it means you're following your plan, not God's. Can you give me a Bible passage to... uh... And then frustration comes when you follow your plan, because you keep hitting all these dead ends, because you can't see around the corner. And then, of course, fear. If you're nervous about the future, if you're worried about the future, if you're anxious, if you have anxiety, if you have a hard time sleeping at night because of the future, it means you're following your plan. Oh, okay, that's how you know, okay. God's. You see, that's why Jesus was sent to earth, to be our Savior. Okay. Savior from what, Rick? Our failed, frustrated, fatiguing plans? Oh, come on. One of the things that the angel said at the very first Christmas was this verse. Let's read it aloud together. It's Luke 10, 2, verse... We're just going to read a verse. Just one verse. This guy does not know how to read anything in context. 11. Let's read it aloud. Today, a Savior has been born for you. He is Christ the Lord. Now notice, a Savior has been born not for just the whole world, but for you. He's a personal Savior for you. Now the verse before it says, it's good news for all people. As I said, it, it, it's not, Jesus is not just for Christians. He's for Muslims. He's for Jews. He's for Hindus. He's for Buddhists. He's for people with no faith at all. It is good news to all people. Jesus came to save everybody. 
But he said, for unto you is born a Savior. You say, well, I don't need to be saved. Well, I'm not drowning. Oh, you need to be saved. You need a Savior more than you realize it. In fact, if God didn't think you needed a Savior, if you didn't need one, believe me, he wouldn't have wasted the time sending one 2,008 years ago, and we wouldn't have been celebrating Christmas for all these years. Okay, great. Why do I need a Savior, Rick? What do I need to be saved from? The biblical answer is I actually need to be saved from the wrath of God. And why would God be wrathful towards me? Because you're a sinner, Chris. You're hurting my self-esteem. Stop. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. I'm a sinner. So I need to be saved from the wrath, the coming wrath of God. Why? Because I'm a sinner. I have transgressed the laws of God and I deserve to go to hell. And all Rick is saying, yeah, trust me, you need a Savior. Why do I need to trust you? You can't even quote God's word right. You need a Savior. What does he save me from? Oh, so many things. He doesn't just save you from sin. That's good. He doesn't just save you from hell. That's good. He doesn't just save you into heaven. That's good. He saves you from yourself, from your self-centeredness and all the problems that that causes. He saves you from uh, all of the uh, side effects of sin in your life. The worry, the fear, the bitterness, the guilt, the shame, the resentment, the loneliness, the anger, the, the, the jealousy, all of the, all of the negative emotions that come when I live the life that I want to live instead of living the life that God intended for me to live. I thought it was trusting Christ, trusting Christ by faith. God works the fruit of the Holy Spirit, so it's his peace, patience, joy, long-suffering, things like that, right? He saves me from all of these things. He saves me if, if I follow the law. He saves me from my past. He saves me for uh, a purpose. And he saves me into the future, into heaven. It's past, present, and future. Now, all of us are at one of three spiritual categories today. Everybody listening here and watching here is in one of three categories. We're either seekers or we're stumblers or we're saved. And I- seekers, stumblers, or saved. Well, let's just tear that apart for a second. I apologize that we've gone a little bit long, but, you know, it's a Rick Warren sermon and we have to do the play-by-play. Uh, Romans chapter 2 and 3. Okay. Let's see. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. So what are we? What then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under, the, are under sin, as it is written. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. According to this passage, you know, Romans chapter 3, verse uh, 11, it says, no one understands, no one seeks God, which by the way, um, is quoting the Psalms. Okay. Psalm chapter 14 to be exact. Um, actually it's not Psalms 14, but he's quoting the Psalms here. Um, it says no one seeks God. How many seekers are there according to scriptures? How many uh, of all the sinners in the world? How many seek God? None. There's no such thing as a seeker. No one seeks God. 
By nature, we are at war with God. We don't seek him. We want to destroy him. We want to usurp him. We want to kick him off the throne and put ourselves on the throne. So I've been in all. So it's, it's, it's the shepherd that goes out and gets the sheep, not the sheep that finds the shepherd. Yeah, that's a great story. Yeah, the, the, the parable of the lost sheep. Remember that one? The, you know, the, he leaves the 99 to go after the one that wandered off. You want to know what repentance looks like? It's when the shepherd finds the lost sheep, puts him, on his, puts him over his neck, and carries him back. It's a shepherd that does all the work. Yep. Not in this one. All three categories. Some of us are seekers. That means we haven't spiritually stepped across the line yet. We haven't accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. I haven't been given faith. He's not monergistic here. He's, he's speaking synergism talk here. God's Christmas gift to us. We haven't had our past forgiven, got a purpose for living, assured of a home in heaven. We're not sure of that, but we're seeking. Now, there's nothing wrong with being a seeker. That's a good thing. In fact, the wise men were seekers. And we don't know if the wise men were from India or from... Uh, well, wait a second. We just read earlier that uh, those who do not believe in God are under God's wrath. So there's no such thing as a seeker according to Scripture. And anybody who doesn't trust in Christ for their salvation is under God's wrath. That's a good thing? China or wherever, they came from the east. But the good thing was they were seeking Jesus. And it's wise to seek Jesus. Wise men still seek him. Why should I seek him? And so I encourage you to check him out. Wise men still seek Jesus. And just as God guided the wise men to Bethlehem so they could find Jesus, God guided you to this service so you could find him. I'm Really? So we can find Jesus at Saddleback? I, so far, I haven't heard anything really about what he really says, teaches, or whatever. I don't have the only reason I've been given so far to have any faith in him, and faith is trusting him for the plans for my future, and repentance is to abandon my plans and go with God's plans. Some of us are not seekers, we're stumblers. That means we've been close to God in the past, but we've kind of fallen away. Maybe you were close to God a month ago, or a year ago, or 20 years ago. But you've lost that passion, and you're kind of stumbling your way through life. God says, come home to me this Christmas. It's time for you to come home. And God says, I'm not going to scold you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to bring you into, into my loving arms. You see, God isn't mad at you. He's mad about you. He's mad about you. And when he looks at all the things you've done wrong, he doesn't rub it in. He rubs it out. That's what he came to do, to save us from all those things. Savior, saviors come to save us. And that's what the third group is. Some of us are saved. That means we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. We've accepted the Christmas gift that God gave to us. Now, if you, I gave you a Christmas gift, or you gave me a Christmas gift, and a year from today you say, hey, Rick, how'd you like my gift? And I say, well, I'm, I'm sure it's a nice gift, but I haven't had time to unwrap it. You would be offended, and I would miss the blessing of the gift. And yet millions of people celebrate Christmas year after year after year and never unwrap the Christmas gift. The gift of salvation. Have salvation from, well, he explained all of, you know, this, that hell, salvation from hell, from God's wrath, you know, that salvation to a better life, less stress. And Have you ever accepted the gift of salvation? The gift of Jesus Christ being your Savior, if you haven't, you're missing the whole purpose of Christmas. You may as well just skip the holiday. The whole reason we give gifts is because the, the, the wise men brought gifts to Jesus at the first Christmas. 
You need to accept him as your Savior and Lord. How do you do that? First, you say, God, I admit that I need you. I am imperfect. I have sinned. I've blown it. I've made mistakes. I need your forgiveness. He hasn't even explained what sin is. In this entire sermon, he, he, he keeps glossing over it, but he doesn't really explain what it is. The closest he comes to explaining it is when he talks about being self-centered. But that's really it. Second, you say, I want to change. I want to turn from my sins. I want to repent, that change of mind. I want to, I want to go with your plan, not my plan. I want to look at life your way, not my way. You... So I'm going to abandon my plan and go with your plan. Accept what Jesus Christ did for you in dying on the cross. And you accept that salvation because he died for your sins so you don't have to pay for them. And you receive the gift of salvation and eternal life. As I said, past forgiven, purpose for living, home in heaven. That is God's Christmas gift to you. It's what it means to be saved. Now let me ask you, has God been trying to get your attention? Have you- so apparently if you've showed up or you're listening to this and you're having your, your plans of your life in 2008 have changed, then God's trying to get your attention. You've been going through some plan changes in your life. You know, one of the ways God often gets our attention is through finances and all of a sudden he gets our why do i feel like he's manipulating people who are suffering right now with difficult times attention or through circumstances that are beyond our control or through a relational conflict and we realize that we're not as in control as we thought we were you know at the first christmas people came to jesus to see jesus for different reasons and many of us here tonight came for different reasons. And those watching on television are watching for different reasons. And I don't care why you think you came to this service. You're not here by accident. A thousand years before you were born, God knew you would be here at Christmas 2008 so he could say this to you. You know, it's really funny. A thousand and one years before God created the world, he knew that I would be listening to the sermon and pointing out all the false scripture twisting that was going on in it. <gasps> It's not an accident that we're doing the sermon review. What a parlor trick. Good night. You matter to me. I love you. I've seen every moment of your life. I watched you formed in your mother's womb. I saw you take your first breath. And I've never stopped loving you. And I want you to know me back and receive my salvation. So, there we go. Rick Warren's Christmas sermon. One interesting hodgepodge and of completely tortured taken out of context scripture no real concept of sin no explanation about the wrath of god and the hell that's coming no a complete redefinition of repentance and faith and somehow i'm supposed to rejoice because people are coming to the lord as a result of this sermon right because it was broadcast on fox news Man, 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 I tell you. Again, I ask the question, what is Rick Warren? Because if he's supposed to be a pastor, then why does he twist God's word so badly? That's my question. And if he's a pastor, then why does he have all of these trappings and surroundings of a politician? Or a celebrity. celebrity. You know, know, at this point... it just it's frustrating it's absolutely frustrating to listen to this because i it's hard for me to sit through silently while somebody's mangling god's word as badly as he is anyway 
If you would like to email me and let me know what you think, thought of Rick Warren's sermon and what's going on, um, email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Until next time, God bless you.